0: Father in heaven, we do love you, and we pray uh, that you would speak to us this morning, God. God, I invite your spirit to to once again use me in a manner that only you can, God, that if there is anything of me that is not of you, that you would suppress it and remove it from these moments, God, that your word and your truth would reign supreme, uh, that all of us could come before you with a posture of humility that says, Lord, speak to us. Help us to have our hearts that are sensitive to what it is that you want us to hear to know to learn to do and to become god that we would not take any sort of 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 a posture that says we're okay and content with things that are father but help us to see as you see through your eyes and through through your love and through your hearts and be stirred and compelled by what can be because of the love and the saving work of jesus christ and so we thank you for this opportunity to explore those things and to pursue those things through your word and your truth. And we ask that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, let's, let's get right to it. We got a lot to cover today. Uh, if you were with us last week, Uh, you you made it through the Sermon on Politics. So congratulations, I'm glad you're back with us now. We get to talk about food. Uh, So quite a change, quite a discrepancy. In fact, if you've read through the book of Romans at all, when you get to Romans chapter 14, if you're like me, it's maybe a little confusing to figure out its relevance. Uh, you can read through chapters 14, chapter 14 and extract certain verses that are obviously compelling and encouraging you go, oh, okay, well, I, I can take that one and apply it to my life. But by and large, historically, when I've read this chapter, it has felt like I've been reading about a particular subject or topic that was outdated, uh, that was relevant a long time ago, and didn't really know how to apply it to my life today. After studying it this past week, I'm here to tell you that I would be willing to argue this is maybe one of the most relevant chapters in the book of Romans. Uh, It is incredibly relevant for where we are today, and and I I think it carries a tremendous amount of importance. Now, what I told you last week is that because we're trying to get through the rest of the book of Romans before the fall semester begins, uh, we're taking on bigger chunks of Scripture. We took on all of chapter 13 last week. We're about to take on all of chapter 14 this morning and do our best. And so what that means is that we won't have the opportunity to go through this verse by verse as much as I would love to do so. We'll hit some of the highlights, but I think we'll be able to walk away with some very relevant um, lessons and applications for our world today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans 14. I'm going to read it all in its entirety so that we kind of have the the overall sense of it. It's 23 verses, and then we'll work through it a little bit this morning together. Starting in verse 1. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account for ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. For I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. And if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Okay. A lot to unpack here. Let me try to give a brief summary as to what Paul is speaking about and then bring it into a certain degree of relevance for us this morning. What is a central focus here is Pauls addressing the questions of ritualistic eating, dietary restrictions that were common amongst the Jude- Jewish people, as well as the observance of certain days as sacred, whether that was the Sabbath day or a particular feast or festival. All right, and that's what he's trying to address because essentially what's happening is that you have Jews who have built their whole life, their whole identity around their understanding of these dietary restrictions, these, 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 un, these ritual practices that had certain traditions to help them know what was clean and what was unclean. And that was more than just like, is this healthy for you? This was, this was so much bigger because it was about their identity and their understanding of holiness their understanding of purity, their understanding of, of righteousness, of obedience, and that carried over even into their understanding of certain days being sacred, right? You, you saw the consistent attention in the Gospels of, of the Pharisees and others asking about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy and what that looked like, and these were chief identifying markers of the Jewish people. Uh, this is how I understood as a Jew, what does it mean to find atonement For my sins, there's a day of atonement. How do I remember God's provision and the way that he rescues me? Well, by obviously engaging in a feast or a a festival of the Passover, right? Like these were very, very important traditions that defined them as a people, their understanding of holiness, righteousness, and all these things that helped them understand what it meant to belong to God and understand salvation. Okay, and so now they're trying to figure out how has Jesus impacted all of it? How has this gospel impacted all those things? And what's creating that question is the Gentiles in many respects, right? Gentiles who are coming to faith, who have no such heritage, no such background, and Paul is essentially establishing these churches saying you don't have to adhere to these things. And so the tension that creates within the church, is all of a sudden Jews going, now wait a second, do I have to adhere to all these things? How do I not maintain these things that I've known and are so sacred to me? And similarly, you've got Gentiles going, now wait a second, I believe in Jesus, but are you telling me I have to adhere to all of these rituals and all these traditions and all these practices? So before we think, and we read Romans 14, as it's just kind of Paul speaking to some form of dietary codes or, or understandings of particular feasts or festivals, essentially what Paul is addressing for the church is what does it mean to be Christian? Like, what does it look like to live this out? And he is speaking on the two most obvious and, and kind of tense-filled subjects that plagued the church at this point in time. Because food in these particular days were essentially external, visible markers to others that could, could ultimately serve as like a litmus test for your devotion to your faith. Right? Like, like that's how Jews proved their devotion. Like did you stick to these things? And it was, it was something that could be observed by everyone else around them. And so this was a major issue. And and the reality is is that we do these sorts of things all the time, don't we? Like we are constantly creating within the church certain litmus tests for one another to prove our devotion to God, don't we? Uh, Let me give you an example. This is a pretty trivial one. We'll get to the serious ones here in a little bit. Uh, But when I got serious about my faith, I was 16 years old. and, And that was when we and my friends tried to figure out, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus, like how do we do this, and one of the things that we began to focus on was music. Now, I'm from the era when I grew up in high school, we listened to CDs. Now, there's some of you in here who have no idea what a CD is. This is pre-Spotify, pre-iTunes, pre-Napster even, and this was the era where you actually went to a music store or a bookstore bought it. Bought a CD. Went out to the car, scraped it along the pavement there to make it easier to get through the sticker and all the other stuff. And you put it in, and you had these massive CD cases because you didn't want your CD to get scratched, right? So, like, you spent all this money on. And I had these huge CD cases. And I had all sorts of types of music that I listened to uh, as a a younger kid. And so there was a moment where we decided as we were trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower, what does it mean to live out this Christian faith, where me and my friends, we decided to purge ourselves of all the music that we deemed to be as unchristian. So we were like, Dave Matthews, gone, Tupac, gone, and all these different things. We just kind of like got rid of all of it, and this was a litmus test that we kind of created for ourselves to prove our devotion to the gospel, right? This, is, this happens all the time. And some people looked at us, and they were like, you're crazy. Um, and probably about a year or two later, I looked at myself and was like, that was kind of crazy, right? And so you do this all the time within the faith. And this was the issue at hand here, was we're creating a sense of devotion based on these dietary restrictions and these feasts and these festivals, and what does it mean to be Christian? Now here's here's where this chapter becomes so brilliant and how it becomes so relevant, is what Paul understands and what he begins to tap into is that whenever there is a social group of any sort, there are going to be moments where you have a segment of that group that leans one direction and a segment that leans another. Right, you're gonna have traditionalists that are maybe a little bit more conservative in their understanding of how these things need to be applied and and how they would define it. And then you're gonna have others that might be a little bit more progressive, a little bit more free thinking, a little bit more liberal in how they would apply these things. And there's going to be an inevitable tension that's created between the two. Now when I use the words conservative and liberal to explain this today, please do not hear those as political uh, labels. Right? We've moved beyond the politics conversation. So I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat, anything like those lines. I just mean those in a very simple definition of what those terms mean. That when you have a social setting, there are gonna be people that take a more conservative and more restrictive and more defined approach, a more legalistic approach. And you're gonna have others that are gonna be a little bit more liberal, a little bit more free thinking, taking a little bit more license to their approach. And these things take place within the church all the time. Let me give you some examples. Music. Right, like, hey, maybe there's a certain traditional way that we should worship God with our songs. And others that might say, well, actually, we should be a little bit more innovative, more progressive, and bring in a more contemporary modern expression of music. And you know what happens is that it creates quarreling and division, and churches actually split over it. I'll give you another one. Reformed theology. Right? Uh, predestination and free will. I can tell you that since I was 16, whether it was in seminary or whether it was friends in high school or it was college or even in interviews for jobs, a consistent question I have been asked is, are you reformed? Like, how do you handle the sovereignty of God versus the choice of humanity? How do you answer that question? And churches have split. People will not affiliate in certain circles if they disagree on that particular question. Let me give you one that's really relevant right now to Southern Baptist women in ministry. Right, there is a traditionalist or more conservative view that's gonna say women have no place at the pulpit or in teaching or in preaching, right? That they are, they are limited to a certain role that they can have in the church, and there are gonna be others that are gonna say, no, you can be a little bit more progressive in your interpretation of those texts, and they can preach, and they can have certain roles, and guess what? We're splitting over the ways in which we interpret that particular issue. This is why I tell you Romans chapter 14 is easily and arguably one of the most relevant chapters that we will come across going through the book of Romans. Okay? And so Paul begins to say, well, here's how you handle those situations. Here's how you respond, okay? And again, we don't have time to go through it verse by verse, but let me hit the highlights for you. We'll start with verse one. Here's this opening word of instruction to the church when you encounter this sort of situation and you have to navigate this sort of dynamic. He says, accept the one whose faith is weaker and do not quarrel over disputable matters. Okay, let me quickly talk about the language of weak faith because we're not going to focus on it to a great deal this morning, but it's important that you know it. Here's how Paul is assessing this particular situation. What he is saying is that for those who feel like they still need to adhere to these dietary restrictions, right, that that is still an important part for them, what they are doing is they have not yet seen the fullness of what Christ has done. Right? They, they don't yet fully understand the extent to which Christ's death and resurrection has set them free from this understanding of what is clean and unclean. Therefore, their faith is weaker. Right? And, and so he, he acknowledges that, and that's kind of the way that he's defined it uh, throughout this chapter. Now, we're not going to spend a great deal on that, but that's what he's referring to, is that they haven't yet quite seen the extent of the gospel, so they're still clinging to some of these dietary restrictions. Okay? So that's just context. But here's the point. A couple of points that I want to extract from verse 1 is the emphasis on accept one another. Right, That word acceptance is really important because what acceptance means, it means to have a warm wholeheartedness. And I think this is incredibly important because when we think about the issues that we often see divide us or that we disagree with one another on, very rarely do we bring a warm, wholeheartedness to one another. What we tend to do is bring a cold, half-heartedness to one another. Right, it's like a tolerance. It's like I'll put up with them or I'll avoid them. And what Paul says is wrong. You treat them with a warm, wholeheartedness. And so I think that's the first challenge for us today is for us to think about the folks that we disagree with, especially within the body of Christ, and say, how is my heart conditioned to them? Right? Am am I just tolerating them? Am I cold towards them? Am I giving them just a portion of my heart? Or am I accepting them with the warm, wholeheartedness that the gospel commands? That's the first question that we need to see. The encouragement for believers is you accept one another, even if you disagree, even if their faith is weaker. Now, here's the other part of verse 1 that I think is really compelling and important for us, as he talks about not quarreling over disputable matters. And what Paul has just said in verse 1 is, guess what? There are going to be things, church, you don't agree about. What a novel idea, right? Like, there are going to be matters that are disputable. Here, this is the part of the verse that reminds me of this quote that's often attributed to Augustine. Uh, unity in what is primary, liberty in what is secondary, and in all things charity. You've ever heard that quote? And that more or less is what I feel like Paul is trying to get at, right? Here's how I want us to hear this, is that there are certain things for the church and within, within the body of believers that we have to identify as primary. And there has to be unity there, Okay. There are other issues in the church that are going to be classified and seen as secondary. And and there doesn't have to be 100% unity. There can be liberty, right? There's going to be disputes. So don't let them lead to quarreling. Give each other freedom to dispute. You can disagree with one another. Isn't that an incredible concept? The question and the challenge that we often face is what is the difference? Where do we draw that line between that which is Primary and that which is secondary. And we don't always agree on that, shockingly. But let me, for the sake of today's discussion, tell you where I draw that line and how I've tried to draw that line as pastor uh, of this church. Is There is one question that I ask to help draw the line uh, between primary and secondary, and that question is, are we talking about salvation? That's how I do it. So let me explain that to you. Um, if the issue at hand makes me question the state of salvation then that is a that is a primary issue so if we're if we are discussing whether or not we believe Jesus is the son of god if we are wondering if we believe Jesus actually was crucified buried and resurrected if we disagree on those things then i am wondering if we share the, ex- the same faith do you even really understand the gospel are you really saved Right, if we're we're wrestling with, was Jesus the fullness of God in bodily form, like these key tenets of the faith, that if we have a disagreement, I am wondering about salvation, those to me are the things that are primary. Anything other than that, in my view, is secondary. And there needs to be liberty. So let me give you an example. Communion. Right? So if you want to subscribe to the idea of transubstantiation, which means that you believe that when you partake of the bread and the wine, you believe that the bread and the wine literally transforms to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, I may disagree with you. I do disagree with you. But I would never question your salvation. If you want to baptize infants through sprinkling, I, I may disagree with you. But I'm not going to question your salvation. Right? Right? So, like, there are disputable matters, and these are secondary things, and it does become problematic when we don't always agree on what is primary and secondary, and what you tend to find, and what Paul realizes is that the conservatives and the traditionalists, they like to claim a little bit more to be primary. They have a stricter definition of what it means to be a Christ follower, and the others on the other side, they take a little bit of a smaller definition of it and give liberty to more things. And so there's gotta be helpful dialogue to determine what is primary, what is secondary, without quarreling, right? And, but what Paul is saying is that, guess what? On certain disputable matters, like one of you doesn't have to be wrong for the other to be right. Like, guess what? There, there actually is value in both types of music. You can both be right about that. You know what, maybe, just maybe, there's a mystery between the sovereignty of God And the element of human choice like maybe there is something that speaks to male headship in certain settings and situations and maybe there is liberty for women to speak and preach maybe it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game that leads to quarreling and that's what paul is talking about right there are going to be moments that we disagree and so here's what he hits on very well uh, that makes us conscious of our own uh, i guess impulse to how we can react to this in a negative way it's, here's how he describes it. He says, here's what you're prone to do. For those um, whose, whose faith is strong, more or less, for those who take more of a liberal um, and, and more of a, a license to app, uh, imply these things or apply these things, you're going to have a tendency to look on the others who don't agree with you with disdain, right? You're going to look at them with contempt. So you're going you're to look down on them, Right? Whereas those who have a stricter definition of what it means to be Christian or a more traditional view, you're going to look on those that don't, and you're going to look on them with judgment. Right? Because, see, you're not, you're not adhering to the things that I've determined are primary and holy or important, so y- you've, you've gone off the rails. Right? And so those are the temptations. Those are the mindsets. We're going to look each other that lead to quarreling. We're going to look at each other either with disdain and frustration and look down upon somebody because they're too narrow-minded or they're not progressive enough, or we're gonna look at the others and we're gonna hold judgment against them because they are dishonorable and, and, and not holy enough or not righteous enough. And so the way that Paul speaks into that temptation is he essentially says, uh, this really isn't about you projecting your beliefs on someone else, this is between that person and the Lord. Here's the example, he says, uh, you, you don't really need to interject yourself in the relationship between a slave and a master. And the reason that carries so much weight is because in Roman culture, there were still masters and slaves. And it would have been unheard of, unheard of for you to interject yourself into the relationship between a master and a slave. Like if you're at the marketplace and you see something going on between a slave and a master, you did not step in and offer commentary and opinion on it. It was between the master and the slave. The slave, the servant will stand and fall before the master, it's up to them. And so essentially what he's saying is that a lot of these things, like this is between them and the Lord. Now you, you, it's not really your place to interject and, and have some sort of commentary and force those things upon them. Now here's where we've got to be really, really careful with this text. Because here's what we love to do in our culture today. We love to take texts like this and misapply it in a way that gives us a certain freedom that makes us immune to accountability. Right, like, like here's how we do it. Uh, our favorite in our culture today is to extract when Jesus says in the gospel, judge not lest you be judged. And so we'll take a verse like that and be like, see that? You can't judge me. Like, Leave me alone. This is between me and the Lord. And that's what we could do with Romans 14. Like, that's not your place. This is just between me and God. I get to do what I wanna do. And that's what our culture wants us to believe because the mantra of our culture is what? It's your truth. Do what you wanna do. It's just between you and Jesus, man. So man, if you wanna live that way, live that way. And we just totally make ourselves immune to accountability. That's not what Paul is saying. Right? There is a certain uh, sensitivity and wisdom and, and, and awareness to go, you don't need to insert yourself into certain things because it is ultimately between them and the Lord. But here's what you're looking for, that they are taking those things to the Lord. Did you see it? Like when we read that second paragraph, did you catch that refrain over and over and over again? If you eat, you do so to the Lord. If you drink, to the Lord. If you live, to the Lord. If you die, to the Lord. So the posture that the believer needs to take is not one that says this is to the self, but one that says this is to the Lord. And when we see that in one another, then we can rest and trust that it's between them and the Lord. Now, there's no doubt on some of these issues, right, and some of these subjects, our propensity and our tendencies is not to take them to the Lord and to keep them for ourselves, right? When we take something to the Lord, that is in humility, that is in submission, that is in a pursuit of righteousness, that is in a pursuit of the authority of God's word and all those different things that we see. Now, we need to have the maturity to say, we can all search the scriptures and walk away with certain conclusions that might be different, but that's okay. That's still you taking it to the Lord, But if we engage in these conversations and we don't see evidence of someone taking it to the Lord, well, that can be problematic. And when you think about these subjects that I've referenced, there is no doubt that there are moments where we can infuse not something that has been taken to the Lord, but our own personal preferences and agendas. Right, like when we start talking about music, for example, that's an easy one. And, and you've got somebody advocating for their position and there's no reference to scripture and it's all about personal preference, man, that's you taking it to yourself, right? When you think about the agenda that you can infuse in these things, go back to women in ministry, right? You, you think about the subject of women in ministry and, and if, if you want to adhere to a complementarian point of view where you think that it really needs to be male headship, you know what, when you are anchored in the text, and those conversations are centered around 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. Like, I, I respect that. That to me is, you're taking it to the Lord. But when we have conversations that start talking about the slippery slope, and we have conversations that start projecting upon other people that if you support women in ministry, well, that's going to lead to you having all different views about gender and, and sexuality and all these different things, and this is the slippery slope. That, that sounds like an agenda. If it's rooted in something that's, well, I don't want to submit certain or release certain power, that sounds like an agenda. Similarly, if you want to support more of an egalitarian view and you want to be anchored in the text and you want to point to Galatians that talks about male or female, right? That we're all one in Jesus. Or you want to reference Junia or you want to reference the spirit of God being poured out on sons and daughters and you are anchored in Scripture. I'm like, yes, that is taking it to the Lord. But if you come and you say, well, women have been wronged and oppressed and they need to have a voice and we need to have all these different things and it's about feminism and Me Too movements and all that, that sounds like an agenda. Do you hear the difference? So so we don't use this as a license to just go do what we want and to, to satisfy our own cravings and our own agendas. We take it to the Lord and we can still disagree but we take it to the Lord. And so that can prevent us from quarreling because when we see that posture in one another, here's what we can stand confident in, that every single one of us has to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Has that settled in with you? Like you will stand before the Lord to give an account for your life. You don't have to answer to me. You don't have to answer to your spouse. You don't have to answer to some executive committee of a denomination. You will stand before the Lord. So take it to the Lord. And that's what Paul gets us to anchor ourselves in. This is the nature of the relationship on these things. And if we can trust in that, then it can help diminish the sort of quarreling and arguing that will take place amongst ourselves, which is where he leads to next. If you get past that discussion about standing before the Lord and you get to that next paragraph, he starts talking about uh, what it means to not be a stumbling block and what it means to not be Uh, an obstacle to one another. And this is where it becomes really important and somewhat delicate and sensitive, okay? Uh, When he talks about those things, a stumbling block literally means to to be in someone's way. Um, The obstacle has a different connotation to it. Obstacle there means uh, more or less to ensnare or to trap. And so his point is, is that if we respond wrongly in these situations, uh, it, it can be incredibly destructive to another person's faith. It, it becomes a stumbling block to others. It can actually trap others and ensnare them in sin. So, so think of it this way, broad category for a moment. Uh, think about um, a more legalistic understanding of the gospel and application of what it means to be a Christian. And I can tell you, I've had numerous conversations with people throughout the course of my ministry life of folks who have grown up in that environment in these harsh, restrictive ideas of what it means to follow Jesus that they have forced and impressed upon others and it has led people into a beaten down, broken view of God and ultimately led them away from the faith. It was a stumbling block. And similarly, there are those who take a very uh, licentious approach, a very kind of carefree approach to how they implement the gospel. And there's very little evidence of any pursuit of righteousness or obedience. And they kind of do whatever they want. And there are numerous people that go, oh, if they can do it, I can too. And they can't handle it the same way. And it leads them into sinful behavior. Or they look at it and they say, well, that seems really hypocritical. That seems really disingenuous of you. If that's really what Christians do, then I want no part of it and they've walked away from the faith, right? It's a stumbling block. It, it is a, a, an obstacle to others with how we respond. So Paul gives an incredibly powerful example, okay? And, and this is gonna be the most delicate part of the message today. I've prayed a lot about this. I'm gonna trust that we can get through it in, in the right way, because I think it's important. Let me, re- let me go back to it. Here's how Paul handles this gets to verse 14. He says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Okay. Here's how I'm going to do this. I want your grace. Here's the other subject That is very relevant to our church today, our culture today, that I think many of you probably hear in the back of your minds, and and I resonate with this subject most intently here, and that's the question of sexuality, right? Sexual orientation, gender identity, where you can easily find different opinions within churches, right? And so some would qualify this as a disputable matter, okay? So how do we respond to that? Well, I resonate with Paul here on that issue, okay? Because Paul speaks into this very delicate, sensitive subject, and he says, let me tell you my personal opinion. I'm fully convinced and persuaded in the Lord that everything is clean. So what he has just said is he goes, for me, I have been convinced and persuaded you can eat anything. And he offers his perspective on it, right? And he tells them what they think. And and I'll just tell you, for me, on that particular issue of sexuality, I would take a similar position. I would say I've, I've, I've thought about this, I've prayed about this, I've read this, I've searched the Scriptures over and over and over again. I am thoroughly convinced and fully persuaded in the Lord that what the Scriptures teach is a traditional understanding of gender identity and marriage between a man and a woman that is what I believe, that is what I teach, that is what we adhere to here. Okay? Let me explain to you how I view that in light of all the things that we've just talked about. Okay? Is it a salvation issue? No. Let me explain it this way. If you're a believer and you're a part of this church and you struggle with greed, right, greed, like you have a serious struggle with greed, I'm not going to say, well, because you struggle with greed, you're not a Christian. I would never say that. And if you come to me and say, man, I've got this struggle with greed. I've got this this impulse for more money. I've got this desire to accumulate more things and all this different stuff. You know what I'd say? I'd say, "Let's, let's search the scriptures. Let's see what God tells us to do with those desires and with those impulses. And let's submit ourselves to the Lord. And we'd seek it together. And, and if you came to me and you said, but yeah, I don't actually think that the Bible says that it's wrong to be greedy, or that I have to care for the poor, or any of those things, we'd still talk about it. And we'd wrestle with it. It'd be a different conversation, but we'd still have a conversation, right? And, and that to me is how I approach not just sexuality and not just greed, but any issue. Because we're all sinners, we all struggle, and we wrestle with it. But here's what's so remarkable about what Paul has said. I'm convinced. Here's my stance on it. But how does he change his behavior? What he does is he recognizes is that my response to this, even with my convictions, if wrong, can destroy somebody else. If I start to lose sight of the person and who they are, and I become so focused on my convictions and my position, I can actually destroy someone in the process And I'm no longer acting in love. And Lord knows the church has done that repeatedly on these issues. Where we have held so tightly to the things that we are convinced of that we stop acting in love and we destroy those for whom God has died. And that is incredibly problematic. And what Paul is saying is that you have lost sight of what the gospel is about you have, you have lost your way because the gospel is not about the kingdom of God, is not about eating and drinking. It is not about contemporary or traditional music. It is not about reformed Armenian philosophies. It is not about women preaching or women not preaching. It is not about sexuality. It is about righteousness, peace, and joy, and love. That's the gospel. So our message needs to be Christ crucified and resurrected more than anything else. And our posture needs to be that of love and sensitivity no matter our convictions. Which is what leads me to our conclusion this morning in my favorite verse of the entire chapter. Verse 19. Okay, so, so this, this idea, this picture in verse 15 where he says, don't destroy someone for whom Christ has died is reiterated in verse 20 right? Don't destroy what God has, the work of God for the sake of food. (laughs) I love it. Like I just, you can hear him like, what are y'all doing? Right? And so this idea, this seriousness that if you mishandle these things, if your heart is wrong, if your posture is wrong, it is destructive to those around you, like needs to carry a significant weight, But verse 19 shows us and paints the picture of the alternative that is rooted in faith. Right? And and here's what he says. He says, make every effort to promote peace, to find peace and mutual edification. So the things that I want to say for us as we close up with this is, first of all, to do this, church, to navigate these things, takes effort. You can't throw in the towel. You can't just give up. You can't just hand it over to other people that are mishandling it. Like, it takes good, God-fearing, honorable people to move forward with the sensitivity, not just on these issues, but any relationship within the church and recognize that if you're going to have that sort of solidarity, that sort of love, that sort of unity within the church, it requires effort. Exhaust yourself towards these things. And specifically, towards peace. Now, what does he mean by that? It's similar to this idea of acceptance because peace is not just the absence of hostility, right? Peace is not just um, having a a tranquil state of mind. Peace in this verse means the overall well-being of another. And so, again, I think where we fall short is we don't fully accept people. We treat them with cold half-heartedness and just kind of tolerate them. We need to approach them with a warm wholeheartedness and pursue peace. Peace that is not just, I wanna avoid conflict, right? I just wanna avoid any sort of hostility, so I'm just gonna let things go. No, I'm actually going to put forth all the effort to make sure that I have your well-being in mind. That's what I'm gonna do. That's where my efforts go. Not just to convince you to believe what I believe, not just to sign a statement and make a stance that I can put on Facebook or social media, but I'm actually going to put the effort into making sure that your well-being is in my interest. That's the spirit of the church. That's the spirit of the gospel. That's what peace is. But the word that I love the most in this verse, in verse 19, is that idea of mutual edification. Right, so obviously it's, it's beneficial. It's a two-way street but it's the idea of edification that really grabs me. Uh, The word edification here means to build. It actually is derived from the same root word that is, is used for a home or for a house. So it's often used to refer to like building a home, building a house. And I love that. And it's especially appropriate given the video we just saw earlier, isn't it, in Guatemala? See, what's so compelling about that that team that went to Guatemala and the video that we just saw is that that is a team that understands what it takes to build. And, and what it takes is a fundamental belief not to be content with what is, but stirred and motivated by what can be. Right? Because that team shows up in this city, in this particular situation, and they see a slab of dirt. And they refuse to think that that has to be how it is. But what they actually see is they see a home. They see a house. And they don't just see a home. They see a family that inhabits that home and a family that can flourish and thrive as a result. So what do they do? They exhaust themselves for the next several days by laying a foundation, building walls, putting a roof over the head, and then gifting it to someone else, and they build. Because those who build are not content with what is but are stirred by what can be. So should it be with how we treat one another, that we should not write each other off and dismiss one another because of personal resentment or grudges or anything along those lines, that we shouldn't treat our brothers and sisters within this denomination or beyond it or the world around us with a certain disdain, a certain contempt, a certain judgment because, well, this just is how it is. Now we refuse to accept that because we follow a gospel that teaches us not to be okay with what is, but to believe and be stirred by what can be, and we build. We build relationships. The church is a place not where you tear one another down, but you build each other up because you believe in what can be in the other, and that's what we're called to do. How do you do it? Well, aren't you glad you have a Savior who has shown you the way? and has given you that example. So as he has loved you, may we go and love others the same way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, even for difficult and challenging texts. Father, I pray that your word um, would reveal within us any posture that has kept a brother or sister at arm's length father any mindset or disposition that has made us look upon someone else with disdain or with judgment and god we repent of those things this morning and we ask that you would teach us and mold us in such a way that helps us know what it means to hold tightly to our convictions god to give ourselves to you knowing that we will stand before you one day to give an account for our life, let us hold tightly to those things and pursue the things that you care about. But may we do so in a manner that brings glory to the gospel, that brings glory to you, that shows love to one another. And we acknowledge that that is an incredibly difficult thing to do in today's world, in today's culture, but we are here to commit to you this morning. We are willing to make the effort to pursue the well-being of others that we can build one another up rather than tear each other down, God, that we would be able to truly uh, be stirred and motivated by what you can do in us. So help us to live this out in such a meaningful and intentional way because we know that all things are possible through your love and that our demonstration of these things is just a response to understanding the love that you have shown us so that we can love others in a similar fashion. We thank you, Father. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.